You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Lincoln. I'm an attorney in Lozano Smith's Monterey office. Our topic today is one that is dominating a lot of the conversation here in California, which is affordable housing. But instead of focusing on how to foster more housing projects, we want to focus on how some of those statewide efforts to address the housing crisis are having an impact on local public agencies, such as school districts and cities and counties who are the bulk of our clients, and how that impact in some cases threatens the way those public agencies do their business. I think this is going to be a really fun discussion. It's been a long time coming together, today's discussion, um, but I've got two fantastic guests with me. I'd like to first introduce Harold Freeman. Harold, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Harold Freeman. I'm a partner in the Walnut Creek office of Lozano Smith. I am remarkably in my 25th year with the firm, uh, and a large part of my practice in that time has focused on issues around school districts and development including school impact fees or developer fees, as we call them, to offset the impacts of development. And in more recent years, uh, my practice has also shifted over to looking into how school districts can go about providing for workforce housing for their own employees and potentially other public employees. So I've been looking at development both from the purposes of the entity that is being impacted and an entity that is increasingly trying to become its own developer. Great. That's great. Thanks, Harold. And that's a lot of what we're going to touch, touch on today. Um, next, I want to introduce the inimitable Bill Curley. Hi, Bill. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, uh, gladly. Uh, hello to Harold and to you. Um, again, I'm Bill Curley, a partner in the Lozano Smith Los Angeles office. I have been in local government for 40 years, uh, the first seven as a city planner, the last 33 as a city attorney type, including special districts and all of the, uh, the affiliate municipal bodies, housing authorities and finance authorities and all things municipal. And that will even include county. So when I do say municipal, consider county too. Um, the, the front line of housing is really at the city level as far as implementation. Uh, which creates much of the, the issue we're going to be discussing because we're finding there's more centralized management from Sacramento. So you have the, the friction between macro planning uh, on a statewide basis that is blind to the actual implementation at the local level, and that's where many of the problems stem from. All right, good. And that's what we're going to get into. Um, thank you both for being here. Um, I want to start us off by talking a little bit about what we mean by an affordable housing crisis. Now, anybody who lives in California, particularly near the coast, can tell you that housing costs are high, rents are high, housing prices are sky high. I'm wondering if either of you can offer perspective on how we got to this place, just as Californians. Harold, can you start? Yeah, just briefly, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors that got us here. And from the viewpoint of the school districts I work with, there was sort of a lull in development in California during the recession, during the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about, you know, roughly 07, 08 through roughly 2012, 13. There was a real slowdown in development. 
but the population growth didn't necessarily slow down. We continued to see school districts that had uh, increasing student populations coming in. And when the market took off, the economy took off, the housing market took off with it. And there has been just a frantic uh, pace of building and even greater impacts on our local agencies and our school districts that have been happening. The demand has been outstripping the supply, I think in part because there was that slowdown of building for an extended period of time. Hmm. Um, So we now have these uh, affordable housing crisis. We talk about it. It's no longer the affordable in the old sense of do you make a certain income that qualifies you for a an affordable housing unit? Now it's just a matter of day-to-day people not being able to afford to buy anything within the market. I read recently that there are now three counties in the Bay Area where to afford a one-bedroom apartment, you have to have an annual income in the $120,000 range or wow. higher. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, we are absolutely in the midst of this. And at the same time, Uh, at least from the perspective of some state legislatures, local cities and counties have not been doing enough to get development projects approved to keep up with this pace. And that brings us to a lot of the the tension we have now with the state. Okay, great. Um, So, Bill, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, I I do. Um, I'm going to take it from a little different angle. Uh, what we are, are experiencing is the manifestation of a huge social question, a very complicated, what is California, what are people's rights, and what is the future? Uh, the post-World War II baby boom and American dream was the single-family house on a lot, uh, Ozzie and Harriet, Leave it to Beaver, mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. And that was ingrained into our culture as what you, you strive to achieve. And what that has led to is that as a, an underlying expectation. So you have many, many, if not all communities other than the large cities and their downtowns that are, are subdivision focused. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People are, are expecting that, and that's the quality of life that the community seeks. Well, you're now running into additional population. And that brings the question, several questions that don't play well together. Right. It's the question that, that we don't have any answer to and probably never will, uh, is the city full? Mm. Can you say we have enough? The door's closed. We don't want to change. People under the Constitution have the right to travel, the right to have property. So those two huge competing interests collide with no answer. Yeah, that's great. I think you both have, have really sketched what the issues are and, and what why this is so challenging to address and yet so urgent. Okay, so now I always proceed to go in to talk about what the legal landscape looks like. Um, and so let's start on the city side, Bill, and talk about um, the legal landscape for cities when it comes to housing. As I understand it, California cities are already required to make efforts to promote affordable housing. Can you tell us more about how those requirements work? It's something that I don't think I have a grasp on. Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, it starts with every city has to have a, a long-range plan, the, the general plan, commonly called the constitution of each city. Mm-hmm. Within that, there's required sections or elements, and one of those is known as the housing element. 
And that takes a, a city 20 years in, in advance of where you are today. Uh, and cities traditionally have done those by obligation of law, but they've been a, a passive tool. Well, what has happened is the, the state, through the legislature, but administratively to a large extent, again through the Department of Housing and Community Development and the Office of Planning Research, have gotten together and said, all of your plans that you've put in there, they, they were pie in the sky to some degree or nice things that may or may not happen. Now you have to make them happen. So the housing elements uh, have gone from a planning tool to a sword, in a sense, usable by the state to compel performances. Now, compounding this, the uh, expiration of redevelopment, redevelopment used to provide 20% of, of its taxable uh, increment, tax increment coming in, to support housing. And that was the main money pump, so to speak, from the public agency side. So that's now gone. So cities have no money to contribute toward housing. The housing element obligations now is supported by a variety of, of statutes. Uh, no net loss zoning. We can't down zone to lower how many units might be built in the city. Automatic approvals of affordable housing projects. So community aesthetics have been pushed aside by Sacramento. Putting all of those pressures together, then we get uh, Governor Newsom recently had said, well, SB1, that transportation tax, we will withhold those monies from cities that we don't think are adequately doing enough. Well, there's no bright line as to what doing enough is. Mm -hmm. So cities look to lose funding. That is compounded with caps, limitations, and fee waivers impressed upon us by Sacramento. So our duties go up. Our financing is gone or limited. And to accomplish now these uh, active obligations rather than the passive one, cities are are left, I'll say, holding the bag. No good way to do it. Okay. So I want to ask you, Bill, with everything you just described about the housing element and, and how cities go about meeting those obligations, I have a question. How do you how, how does the city then pass those obligations on to developers? Because I think that dovetails with some of what I want to talk to Harold about? And and what are some of the challenges cities face when they try to pass on affordable housing obligations to the developers? Well, cities' tools are the traditional ones. If we have the ability to condition a project, which again is slipping, Sacramento's allowing more and more development by right, meaning we don't have any local discretion, but where we do have it, something like a conditional use permit or a development agreement, mm -hmm. we are adding ad hoc conditions in imposing uh, inclusionary housing, imposing uh, funding obligations, imposing economic contributions onto the developers. Now, of course, they resist this mightily 
because they're looking at their return on investment and the cost right. of development. But again, since we have no funding of our own anymore, we have to get that out of the developer mm -hmm. through the application of conditions. We also adopt local ordinances, local laws that put mandatory requirements in for building affordable housing, for including it in. Uh, there was a, a bill last year uh, through the legislature that authorized the attorney general at the request of this administrative office of HCD to sue cities mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, for noncompliance with their housing element. We, we may touch on Huntington Beach and others later. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Uh -huh. And uh, just in this, this recent budget, the governor gave the AG's office an extra $1.5 to fund their actions against cities that HCD saw as as naughty. Okay. Okay, great. Now, I want to pivot over to the schools for a few minutes. Harold, um, let's talk about what we refer to as developer fees or school impact fees, because I want to focus on the impacts that this affordable housing crisis is having on schools through their attempts to collect those fees. At the, present, at the present time, school districts can impose developer fees on projects in their jurisdiction in accordance with a law that we refer to as SB 50. And I want to be clear here, it's going to be a little confusing. We, we're going to talk about the school impact fee law known as SB 50, but we've also this year, this on the city side, there was a proposed bill, SB 50, which maybe we'll come back to a little bit later, um, which is not going forward at the present time in the California legislature. But Harold, can you start by talking about the legal landscape uh, for developer fees collected by school districts and how that came about? Sure. And, you know, to follow up on what Bill had to say, what Bill talks about is how cities are now faced with the struggle of a loss of local control mm -hmm. with the state stepping in more and more. With school districts, we're a completely different statutory constitutional creature. We are political subdivisions of the state, even though we function mm -hmm. at a local basis. And that means that basically we can get that which the state allows us to get. And I'll give you a little background history on what led up to Senate Bill 50. And there's a good discussion of this in the Lozano Smith Developer Fee Handbook, right. which lays out the history of uh, school impact fees in California. But basically, before 1986, it was um, street warfare. Mm. If you wanted to get fees out of a developer, you went to the city, you opposed their development, you tried to put pressure on the city not to approve the development, you used environmental laws as a way to basically uh, come across as a NIMBY, even though at the end of the day, school districts are generally not for or against development. We just need to make sure that we have the space for the students that will be generated by these developments. So all of this led to a bill um, that went into effect and fees that were adopted in 1986 that were called Sterling Fees after the mm. author of the bill that for the first time clarified that school districts could collect a per square foot uh, fee on each unit of development of residential development and then a lower per square foot fee for each square foot of commercial development. Mm -hmm. And the original fee was $1.50 per square foot for the residential, which is my focus here today. And that seemed to settle things for all of a week or two. 
And then immediately fights started coming up because for many school districts, a dollar and 50 cents did not begin to approach the actual impact that the students were having and the need to build facilities. And when that bill was passed, the compromise was reached that basically the way that school facilities would be funded in California was on a tripod method or a three-legged stool, as it was sometimes called where a third of the funding roughly would come from local funds. That usually means local general obligation bonds in a school district. Okay. A third would come from the state through state general obligation bonds, and a third would come from developers. But we immediately started running into problems because the state did not always have bond funds available, and not every school district could get a school bond passed. And so we more and more became reliant on developers And there was a series of lawsuits that took place through the late 80s and early 1990s that opened some doors for school districts to still make the argument that the dollar and 50 cents was not enough per square foot to offset the development. Um, One of the things that came out of SB 50 then was that there were now three tiers of developer fees that you could get, level one, level two, or level three fees. The current level one fee is $3.79 a square foot, Mm -hmm. but a level two fee, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, allows you to try to seek a higher fee if certain criteria are met. And the other thing that legislative reform gave us was you could now pass a school bond with a 55% majority instead of a two-thirds majority. Mm -hmm. Um, That came about as part of the whole same process. We call them Prop 39 bonds or Mm -hmm. 55% bonds. Um, And that kind of became the new lay of the land. What we've all learned, unfortunately, is that even with those reforms, school districts still found themselves not getting enough funds to build the facilities that were needed to meet the uh, impact of the new development. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now talk a little bit more about level two fees. So we've established that 379 is the current level one fee. How much can schools charge potentially uh, under a level two scheme and how do you get to a level two fee? Or a level three, actually, because we know there's a third level. Right. So a little bit on the level two and the level three fee. While a level one fee, you can collect 379 if you're a unified, meaning K through 12 school district. It's it's a lower share if you're an elementary school district or a high school district. Um, that's a number set by the state. The level two fee is also known as an alternative fee. You can get a different fee that is higher than the 379 if you meet certain criteria. And I won't bore everybody with all of the criteria right now. The bottom line is you have to be eligible for state funding. You have to show a projection of students that show you're eligible for state dollars. And if you meet two of those criteria, you can then calculate what your fee is going to be based on criteria that are laid out in the government code. And in short, what those criteria say is you look back five years and you say, what has new development in the last five years generated as far as students per unit? And you can look forward five years of how many units are expected to come and work out what your formula is going to be. One of the many issues we're having right now is that five-year backward look is a little bit limiting. For level one fees, you don't have to limit yourself to looking back five years The reason it's limiting is that we all know that when new development goes in and there's data that backs this up, it takes two to three years for the student generation rate, the number of students per unit, to start reflecting what it will be long term. 
So if you look over a five-year period, you're picking up units that were built in their first year that may have a new family that ha- doesn't have a kid in school yet, mm-hmm. uh, a mm-hmm. couple who bought their first home who are planning on having a child who's not in school yet. And where we're really seeing the impact of that on level two fees right now is on housing that is in transit corridors, where through various programs at the state and local level, there's been an increase in the number of commuter units, apartments, townhomes, condominiums built in large numbers here in the Bay Area. It's by the BART system, uh, but throughout the state near transit, railroad stations, bus stations. And what developers will often tell us is the student generation rate or SGR is very low for those units. And sure enough, if you look at those units in their initial years, it's quite low and it drags down your projection of the number of students. Mm -hmm. But we know anecdotally through one of our clients that's located next to a new BART station that although they experience very low student yield in the first few years of the development, that development near the BART station has now tripled the number of students that it's generating. And the student yield per unit is actually higher in those transit-oriented units now than they are in single-family housing through the rest of the school district. Uh, You'd also mentioned the level three fee. I'll just briefly talk about that. Part of the compromise of SB 50 was that if the state money ever ran out, if a state bond ever ran out, and there was no more money being given to school districts, and so you lost one of the legs of that tripod, the school district could, in essence, double the level two fee. The formula is a little bit more complicated than that, but it roughly doubles the level two fee to what we call the level three fee, which is essentially a stopgap temporary measure until the state funding gets back again to fill in that gap from development. We've only gotten to the point in the history of the state since 1998 when the bill became effective for all purposes. We've only had once where the state legislature said they'd run out of money, even though they run out of money multiple times over. Mm -hmm. Once we got them to admit it just a few years ago, and almost immediately the development community filed a lawsuit to try to stop that. And by the time the dust settled on all of that, a new statewide bond had passed, so it became moot. But in that time period, we worked with one school district that was collecting a level three fee of $23 per square foot, uh, which obviously is quite a high fee. Right, right. Okay. All right. So I think that helps sketch, you know, how schools come into the housing discussion. First, I want to... um, Take this up to Sacramento. Bill's already talked a little bit about this. Talk about, we have a new governor. It's been a theme of some of our podcasts lately, how Governor Newsom is making his mark. And so I want to talk about what efforts specifically the governor is making with respect to the issues that you both just sketched. Now, first of all, Bill, I want to talk about, we'll get to the SB 50 housing law that I mentioned earlier. We'll get to that in a little bit. But first, let's talk about the city of Huntington Beach lawsuit. Um, Tell me more about that and what's at stake for Huntington Beach and what it might mean for other cities in the state. Well, this this is a fascinating case because the outcome will absolutely change the face of of California city organization. And and where I take that from, uh, this comes back to the, the initial concept of can the state make a city change its character? Huntington Beach, 
if you're at all familiar with it, is a beach-oriented community, low-rise, uh, very inviting, but low density as far as development, meaning people and housing per square acre per square mile. Mm -hmm. Under the state program, they would have to recycle land uses, and that, that can mean tearing down existing neighborhoods, going from single-family to mid-rise or high-rise apartment structures, uh, to put in the, the 10,000 or more people that the state told Huntington Beach they had to do would require a lot of physical changes. The community reacted violently. And the city, thinking about how to, to respond to that, relied on their status as a charter city. Uh, charter cities versus general law cities. Uh, a charter city, otherwise known as home rule, uh, passes its own laws. They're on a par basis with Sacramento or the, the state laws, mm -hmm. but they, they deal with everything that is not a statewide issue. Mm -hmm. So Huntington Beach said, we are a charter city. Under our home rule format, uh, the state can't tell us how much housing to add or that we have to change our zoning or, or our character a bit. Mm -hmm. So uh, Huntington Beach said to the state, thank you, but no thank you. We are going with our, our public's desire. And as a charter city, you can't force us to follow the housing element law or any of the state planning and zoning laws that implement affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And where, where I say it'll be a, a seismic change, if Huntington Beach prevails, almost every city is, who isn't a charter city, and most are not, will become a charter city mm. to tell the state, beat it, we're not going to do your affordable housing requirements. And that will virtually gut the state's ability to increase any housing. Interesting. So the battle is is critical. Um, the state has to convince the court that affordable housing is a matter of statewide concern rather than local concern. And, and of course, the city's taking the other approach. And if the state wins, well, then everybody knows uh, Adherence to the administrations uh, through HCD uh, is a standard you better follow or you'll be sued. And again, if the city wins, you probably won't see another affordable housing unit built except in communities that quite embrace it. So it, it is a critical case for the future. Yeah, those stakes could be higher. Okay, so my focus right now is on um, what we're getting out of Sacramento with respect to these issues. So, Harold, let's look at the school side of things. The governor has also come after school impact fees, right, um, for developer fees. So I understand he's called for eliminating them. What What's the climate like from Sacramento right now on developer fees? Well, it's not favorable for school districts. And you know, we have clues of where the governor stands on this based mm -hmm. on statements that he made regarding the budget. And so when you have a new governor come in and make express statements about wanting to limit or eliminate local fees, and he is not limiting that to school districts, that's local fees in general, um, it's a bit of a terrifying moment for school districts because we have this very basic problem. We have to find space for the students that are being generated 
Um, I always think of one lawsuit I was involved with where we had a lawsuit against a school district by the ACLU because one of its school facilities was overcrowded, but we had lawsuits going at the same time by environmental groups to stop us from building a new school. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the pinch now is not coming locally, it's coming from the state where we are required to provide space for these students. A school district constitutionally cannot say no, we've run out of space. You have to provide the space, and it's not just providing space for widgets or uh, bolts that you have to store somewhere. It's students. You need to really think about lab space. You need to think about language courses. You need to think about gymnasiums, different size gymnasiums for different age of students. And the state at the same time, you know, signaling that they may start to limit our ability to collect fees locally is really of great, great concern. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's great. Um, and this is all part of a climate where developer fees are under attack in the courts as well, right? Not initiated at Sacramento. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. We've seen a really significant uptick on the number of developers that are filing lawsuits to protest or try to stop the imposition of developer fees. And the cases have not all come out favorably for the school district. We've had a number of losses over the course of the last two or three years were issues that we have thought has been settled since the SB 50 compromise back in 97, 98, really some of them that have been settled all the way back to the Sterling fees in 1986 are getting reopened and retested by developers. And I understand, you know, developers have a singular goal in mind as much as they talk about uh, providing for good livelihoods for people to live in safe and protected homes. The bottom line is they're for-profit businesses. And as the fee issues continue and as cities and counties impose various fees, the school districts impose their fees, it impacts their bottom line. And they're more and more rolling the dice and litigating these cases with novel issues and with issues that have long been uh, since been settled. Uh, there was a lawsuit where a developer brought just a full frontal attack on the school district's fee studies, raising every issue they could think of. And that included saying, well, school district, you were looking at what the average generation rate for units were based on state numbers. And you can't use state numbers. You have to use local numbers. But you're also looking at school construction costs using local numbers. You can only use state numbers. Hmm. And it was essentially a bunch of spaghetti they threw against the wall. And unfortunately, as the litigation went on, spans of spaghetti fell. But by the time we got to the appellate court, one or two of them stuck. Mm. And one of the questions that was asked of me at appellate oral argument in that case was, what is the impact on the cost of housing from the decision we make today? Mm. And my response then and my response now is it actually doesn't matter mm -hmm. because we are entitled as school districts to offset the impact of new development pursuant to state law. There is not a factor in the SB 50 level two test of how you qualify for developer fees as to what the impact will be on the affordability of housing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it seems clear to me that in the trend of these cases, although they don't talk about it that expressly, there is this underlying concern because the judges are sitting there reading the same newspapers every day we are. Sure that talk about the affordable housing crisis. And trying to buy homes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And if there's mm -hmm. an opening for the court to say, well, maybe this fee seems a little high, 
they're becoming much more activist about um, cutting against the school districts in those cases. Now, just for our listeners, that, that case is the Summerhill case, right? Correct. Okay. All right. So now let's talk about, I referenced this earlier, SB 50, the SB 50 that did not pass. This year, we saw a uh, bill with that name brought um, by State Senator Scott Weiner. Um, it was, as I understand it, mightily opposed by cities. Um, and it so far has failed in the legislature, although I've read predictions that it, it's, it will see it again or something like it in a future legislative session. Bill, can you talk about um, what that bill would have done and how it would have impacted cities had it been enacted? Yes, um, it is. It is still alive. It got tabled, mm. um, which means for this year it is dormant, but it can come back. Okay. This is a reiteration of the same senator's efforts last year to do something similar, and, and what it does is is truly erase local control over a huge swath of a community. What it says is within half a mile of transportation corridors, meaning freeways or if you have Amtrak or Metrolink, local train systems, uh, the cities have no discretionary control anymore. Now, the, the point of the corridors is to help traffic, to avoid impacting a community with a lot of cut through traffic and such build the housing, the needed new housing, along freeway corridors or transportation corridors. So it's very easy for the people to leave their homes and, mm -hmm. and get to where they want to go. Get to work. Uh -huh. Which is one of the problems because without transportation management or anything, you are just compounding already bad traffic by adding more people in. Mm -hmm. Now, normally you would use a CEQA process, the Environmental Review for Traffic Management, mm -hmm. and California Environmental and Quality Aesthetics, Act. Mm -hmm. all of that. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, SB 50, which appears to be a, a number used for <laughs> <laughs> bills that aren't favorable to local agencies, um, would strip the local jurisdiction of, of any say over medium density residential. Mm -hmm. And by that, you're talking four and five story apartment or condos or what have you, but high density concentrated development. Okay. With a city being able to say nothing, you can picture uh, immediately the, the physical change, the aesthetic change. Freeways will become these canyons surrounded by medium to higher density residential and there is nothing whether it be environmental controls air pollution traffic management these are all by right and so not only the the physical change and physical impact but the emotional right. change now if you take a half a mile off um, we've mapped that on several cities that to a large extent will take in uh, 50% of the city or more. Wow. Harold, um, SB 50, as it was proposed and as it's currently tabled, would, would it have had impacts on schools? What, what would that have looked like for school districts? Yeah, we had real concerns about not just that piece of legislation, but others that have been attempted and seem to keep coming back to streamline development because the streamlining often means that as Bill pointed out, the California Environmental Quality Act process goes out the window. Uh, things move very quickly. 
School districts are very busy educating kids. Mm -hmm. They not are focused usually on uh, are we going to have a lot of development in our area? What's happening right now at city council? And they were going to have to start paying more attention to the development because they were going to have to get their foot in the door much faster regarding concerns about impacts on schools. And we're not just talking about impacts of the number of kids. The traffic issues that Bill talks about, um, the issues about safe passive travel to school are all impacted Mm -hmm. when development comes in very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And it is a phenomenon that I have not really seen studied in the state, that when you build transit-oriented housing, if you get higher density of students coming out, one of the things that happens is we can't put schools in those locations. They're usually very dense. There's not a place for the school. The land costs Mm -hmm. are very high. So we have to somehow get all of those kids out of that more dense transit area um, by freeways and whatnot, away to schools that are often in a more suburban setting uh, or even a more rural setting which causes an entire new row of traffic problems. And if the housing goes up quickly, how do we make sure that the roads are getting put in, that the infrastructure is there to even get the kids to school? And so we had great concerns and continue to have great concerns about the expedited housing. Although for those school districts we represent that are looking at building their own affordable housing Mm -hmm. for their own workforce, there were some benefits to those mm-hmm. bills where mm-hmm. we're sitting in the shoes of developers and thinking, well, if we can expedite building a 200-unit apartment complex to house our teachers, our bus drivers, our custodians, our employees in general, mm-hmm. um, streamlining there can be of great assistance. Yeah. Okay, well, these are difficult times. Um, I'm going to bring this to a close by asking you both the same question. Recognizing that the affordable housing crisis is real, and that it needs to be addressed, what would be some common sense actions that the state could take while minimizing some of the impacts that we, you both have been just discussing in local public agencies? So, um, Harold, I'm going to start with you. What would, what would be some things that schools would like to see come out of the legislature? I think it's a great question, Devin. And I think that moving forward, what we would hope is when this legislation is proposed, it's not reactive legislation. We don't have enough affordable houses, so let's put 10,000 homes somewhere where they weren't before. Mm -hmm. That there needs to be a partnership between cities, school districts, counties, the state government, transportation authorities to really give thought to good planning. And that includes considering what the impact is going to be on schools of having this rush of housing come in. They're not within our calculation of what we were expecting, and so we're not building schools fast enough We're not funding them fast enough. The other thing that the state can do, and it is doing, and this is somewhere where I give credit to Governor Newsom, um, he is increasing the flow of dollars to school districts from the state funding side out of the last statewide general obligation bond, which Governor Brown really was releasing at a trickle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there is now a bill moving forward to place a new general obligation bond on the next statewide election those state funds become even more critical to us as we are hampered by the developer fee issues that are coming up, the challenges, the speed of the development. So more funding from the state and more thoughtful planning at the legislative level. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Bill, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Um, What would the cities like to see happen? Well, I I would echo everything Harold said, Mm -hmm. um, but maybe from a little different angle. First, the collaboration is is critical. It's not happening. Uh, Sacramento saying put in 
3.5 million housing units. Um, that That's nice to say. Mm -hmm. uh, at the local level, do you have police to handle it? Do you have water to serve them? Is there sewer capacity? Are there roads? All of the things that make a city beyond that quality of life, just again, infrastructure, getting direction or allowance from Sacramento to integrate this mutual input, including the schools, including special districts, rather than just uh, mandate undeliverable requirements and then getting mad when they're not happening, yeah. have us all work together. Yeah. The second is it's kind of the reverse of, of what Harold mentioned. While the governor is loosening up money to the schools, he's tightening up money to the cities. And as our obligations increase, our funding opportunities are shrinking dramatically. If we could see a, a resurgence of, I'll call it redevelopment 2.0 or whatever number you like, just as to the housing component, mm -hmm. you know, the commercial element, uh, that's a battle for another day. But to give communities funds to further, uh, to assist, to subsidize, to support, to plan, there's a little bit in SB2, which is money for planning, mm -hmm. but implementation is the key. We have nothing to offer. Uh, all we can do to, to stimulate is waive fees, which hurts the city more, or fast track, which if we're already fast tracking a fast track, local opposition and poor planning happens. Right. So coordination and in, in allowing us to use the products in the sense of again, redevelopment, use the money that came from the new development itself. So it was self-generating. Give us that back so we can actually carry out the mission we're being charged with. Because again, without that, we're cutting necessary services, which doesn't help the state or any community at all. Okay. Thank you for that, Bill. I think... Um... I see this as maybe an ongoing conversation we could come back to again in the future. You know, this is going to be an ongoing crisis, um, and I'd love to have you both back in the future to talk about all of these issues again as they develop. So thank you both for your time today. Um, it's been a great discussion. Well, thank you for hosting us. Thank you, Devin. Okay. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today in the show notes. Um, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.